Well, when Matthew Fontaine Maury was commissioned as a midshipman, he boldly wrote, Citizen of Virginia, in accepting his warrant. Although he was born in the Commonwealth, his family, like thousands of others, fled to Tennessee to start over, free of debt. He rediscovered his Virginia roots and family when he came eastward to await his first orders. Maury always returned to Virginia when awaiting new orders or needed the warmth of family and old friends. At no point did the most popular American scientist of his time show his loyalty more than when he served on the governor's advisory council, a de facto war and navy department following secession. What is less well known is his critical role in rebuilding the state following the Civil War. The ambitious physical survey of Virginia from the Virginia Military Institute was an investor's guide to opportunity. There were new struggles and controversies as well over what role, if any, Confederate office holders and military officers would play in the state's public life, how the races would coexist, which institution would be the land-grant college, and the need for a National Weather Service, which somehow seems especially appropriate today. And that became Maury's last crusade and the subject of today's lecture. John Grady is a managing editor of Navy Times and a retired communications director of the, Associated, of the Association of the United States Army. He has contributed to the New York Times Disunion series, Civil War Monitor, and is a blogger for the Navy's sesquicentennial of the Civil War site. John continues writing on national security and defense. He covered the Army deployed in the Balkans during the 1990s and early 2000s and its changes in training and deployment patterns for Afghanistan and Iraq. His later work has appeared on usni.org, govexec.com, and nextgov.com, among others. And finally, John is the author of a recent biography of Matthew Fontaine Maury entitled Matthew Fontaine Maury, Father of Oceanography which he would be happy to sign for you in the shop after the lecture today. So please give a warm pre-blizzard VHS welcome to John Grady. Uh, thank you, Paul. I have to laugh about uh, one of the things we were talking about up there uh, before coming on down for the speech was, of course, the fact that we're looking at a major storm coming into this area. And the very last thing that Maury, the very, actually the very last crusade that he was involved in was the creation of a National Weather Service. And he was fought tooth and nail over whether this was going to actually occur. But to have a last crusade you must have at least a first crusade. And Maury's crusades, and there were many, we're not going to go into all of them, came down to one essential question. Was American science going to be, for the people, a popular science? Or was it going to be pure for the professionals only? Maury's mottos, and most people and most leading figures of the 19th century had mottos. His two mottos were, Kernon and Cui Bono. Kernon, we're loosely translating from the Latin, well, we're not loosely with Kernon, why not? 
cui bono, who benefits? The flashpoint for that debate over the last crusade became the National Weather Service, reporting weather on land. Maury had won the struggle for international cooperation on collecting weather data on the oceans. This is why you have the monument. As with many of these scientific blow-ups, Maury, as head of the National Observatory, was pitted against Joseph Henry, the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, and Alexander Dallas Bache. There's Bache. The great-grandson of Benjamin Franklin and the superintendent of the Coast Survey. Turf battles were the mark of the relationship. The scientific and political fights over creating a National Weather Service was nasty and petty and carried on for almost 20 years and into the graves of Bache and Maury. So who was Maury? He was born far from the sea. If you've been down to the wilderness battlefield, there's a monument to it. He was born on land sold to his father Richard by light horse Harry Lee, Robert E. Lee's father. There was one problem with the land. It had been played out. It was too hard to grow tobacco on it. So as Paul mentioned, like thousands of Virginians, they picked up their children well, first of all, they sold what they had in Virginia, picked up their children, took the slaves that they owned, and fled to the blue grass country of Tennessee, hoping to change their fortunes by growing cotton. But from an early age, Maury could never see himself being a farmer. He wanted the adventures in life that his brother had had as an officer in the Navy. Now, the adventures included taking on the British off Valparaiso in the War of 1812, and then later fighting the British on Lake Champlain. He was also marooned on a Pacific island for two and a half years, but Maury found this to be as exciting as taking on the British. Maury also, Matthew Fontaine, wanted an education at any cost. His family came from, they were Huguenots, who immigrated from France to Ireland and Great Britain. They had a history of being teachers and ministers. They also had a history of being adventurers. The Fontaines and Maury wanted their children to be educated, yet Maury's father, Richard, fought Matthew over this for years. He wanted the boy at home, another hand at picking the cotton. Maury, however, saw himself as wanting to become a useful man, like his cousin, Abram, who had enticed Richard to bring the family to Tennessee. Abram Maury founded the town of Franklin, an amazing town when you consider it when it was founded. Who were three members of its bar association? John Bell, 1860 candidate for president, Sam Houston, whom we call Houston, who became its congressman, <coughs> excuse me, and Thomas Hart Benton, who became a senator from Missouri. All three of them were in this town at the same time practicing law. So Maury, meaning Matthew, 
decided that the way to get around his father was to use subterfuge and guile and wrote Houston directly asking for a commission as an acting midshipman in the Navy. Houston granted it. There were three voyages that Maury made in the Navy that shaped his life and led to the Crusades for naval reform, exploration, oceanic studies, and weather reporting. The first was of maiden sailing. That was when they returned the Marquis de Lafayette after his triumphal tour of the United States in 1824 and 25 to France. The second one was when he sailed around the Cape of Good Horn. This is the only picture I could find on the internet that showed the Cape, excuse me, showed me Cape Horn that was not so stormy that you couldn't see a land bass. <laughs> but here it is. This is what it actually looks like if you're on a ship. This led to his first full-length book on navigation. Now, this book was to be a supplement to Nathaniel Bowditch, for those of you who know anything about sailing, and I do not consider myself a master of sailing, that is still the primer on navigation in the United States. But Maury's book was designed to be a supplement to it. It was after this journey, and it comes with an exclamation point, that he writes to the Secretary of the Navy that he's accepting his commission. Citizen of Virginia. He's got a big exclamation point in there. Actually, I think there are two. And then there's some uh, dashes and ellipses, and he says some other things in there. This was where his family was from. He met his wife here, Anne Hall Herndon. And uh, she was an orphan, and her great uncle and uncle and his wife took them in, and she had a brother, and took them in and raised them. And they were bankers in Fredericksburg. If you go to St. George's Church, in Fredericksburg, you'll find some markers to the Herndons, and those would be her cousins. They would not be the family that took him in. The last journey was probably the most important. It was aboard Vincennes. Vincennes was probably the fastest ship in the American Navy at the time. It was also the first ship to circumnavigate the world. What did Maury see on that trip? Well, he went back to the island that his brother had been marooned on. Not only had his brother been marooned on it, he met the man who saved his brother's life, who was still alive. He was a grandfather at that point, obviously. He'd also been to the trading ports in China with their bizarre rituals of who could go where, and also the Portuguese occupation of Macau, which is now huge gambling casinos. And he went to the Spanish enclave in Manila, where they were draining all of the goods that they could, I shouldn't say goods, the produce that they could out of the Philippine Islands, shipping it to Mexico, eventually to get it to Madrid. Last but not, well, I shouldn't say last but not least, he then came to Cape Town. There he found the British overlording the Dutch and the Africans in what became South Africa. The most interesting thing that he wrote about later, but not immediately, was that the British East India Company would send tea to the governor of the Cape <laughs> Colony from India, and that it had to be served by the Dutch at all of their functions. And this was, he just found this absolutely amazing, that the British had this kind of control. 
Last but not least on that trip, he returned to his French heritage. They stopped at St. Helena's, which as many of you may know, was where Napoleon was buried. And he toured the bower where the grave was. Those sights and memories fueled his life and his imagination and propelled his writings through his career, leading to the first great book in his collection. This is the Physical Geography of the Sea, produced in 1855. It was the most popular scientific work in English. I presume that some in German and French sold more books. But this, in English, was the most popular book. And it was published in 1855. Basically, it came from his work in the Navy and speeches that he had made. It came from a book, or from things that he would call the sailing directions. In becoming a useful man on the world stage, Murray first focused lights on the rotten clique that ran the Navy. The Navy was very, very clique-oriented. And where did he first publish this? Well, it was in the Richmond newspaper. But most importantly, he published later in the Southern Literary Messenger. Who were some other contributors to the Southern Literary Message? Well, John Tyler for one, Abel Parker Upshur for another, John Y. Mason for another. Tyler, as we know, became president, Upshur became Secretary of the Navy, later Secretary of State. Mason was a congressman, a federal judge, and twice Secretary of the Navy. But physical geography of the sea also showed how he bested the admiralty in building charts to control world, world commerce. His oceanic work helped bind the two continents together. The laying of the transatlantic cable, the oceanic work of the transatlantic cable came out of Maury's efforts as the head of the National Observatory. Now getting to the point where Maury then becomes a political figure, he was the strongest advocate of Southern rights of any commissioned officer in the United States Navy or the Army. He preached American manifest destiny, and he used that phrase, America, or, well, he used manifest destiny, from the Arctic, where he helped find the Northwest Passage, all the way down to the Antarctic, the whaling industry being the second largest industry in the United States. Renown and honors flowed to him from home and abroad but they also bred jealousy and contempt in the scientific community and also in the Navy. To Maury's enemies, when he sided with Virginia in April of 1861, he was a traitor, a guerrilla, and a pirate. As with his scientific pursuits, Maury's eagerness to go to the public in person, in print and in, print and in person, raised serious objections to him as a figure of American history. He, was, he managed to have enemies in business, politics, in the United States Navy, the Confederate Navy, and the Royal Navy. Now that's running the table. <laughs> they dismissed him as, quote, the man on the hill, a charlatan. Over his career, Maury found himself a foul of Jefferson Davis, as a senator from Mississippi, a cabinet member and as president of the Confederacy, and Stephen R. Mallory, 
as chairman of the Senate Naval Affairs Committee and as secretary of the Navy for the Confederacy. Through all these struggles, however, he did have major political allies. Now, we've already mentioned Tyler. We've already mentioned Upshur. We've already mentioned Mason. We could add John C. Calhoun. What these Virginians, Tyler, Upshur, and Mason did for Maury is incalculable. He had been crippled in a stagecoach accident in 1839 in southern Ohio. Was he fit for sea duty? Doctors time and time again said no. Yet, when Tyler took office after the death of Harrison, he found Upshur as his, he named Upshur as his Secretary of the Navy. Calhoun actually wanted Maury to be Secretary of the Navy, which I thought was an interesting thing. But Upshur said, you're coming back, you're taking over the depot of instruments and charts and instruments. It's a shore billet, it's in Washington, D.C. Two years later, when the Navy, by hook and crook, managed to get itself placed in charge of the National Observatory, it was not called the Naval Observatory, it's called the National Observatory, John Y. Mason said, you are my man, you are the superintendent. Now, that's the National Observatory. This is the building, this is not the building on Massachusetts Avenue Northwest where the Vice President lives. This is the building when you cross the Memorial Bridge in Washington from Virginia to the district. It's on 23rd Street, it's across from the State Department. And what you're looking at there is the actual first observatory building. And the name of the street around that building is Maury Circle. It's one of the few times that Maury's name is mentioned in Washington, D.C. It became his fortress. Those men and the old battles over the route of the Transcontinental Railroad, the opening of the Amazon, which is crucial to American slaveholders, before the Civil War, the defense of the Great Lakes in the early 1840s against Britain, the Isthmian crossing after gold was discovered in California in the late 1840s, the mining of southern ports and rivers, the James in particular, the building of commerce raiders for the Confederacy in Great Britain and France, and the creation of, new, of a new Virginia in Mexico for the defeated and disaffected Confederates were now only stories in old newspapers and tales told in taverns. Maury had been involved in all of that for 25 years. We're going to fast forward here. He had been arguing with the Smithsonian from the, the mid-1850s on that all of the telegraph reports that they were receiving every day of weather conditions across the United States needed to be released that day, not published annually. Now see, you wouldn't be, pan you wouldn't be panicking today if they had followed Joseph Henry's advice you'd be saying, oh, it's a sunny day today, and it's probably going to be like this a little cold tomorrow, but we'll be okay. Well, we're going to pick up Maury's tale 
1868. He's just delivered this magnificent speech at Cambridge University after he received yet another honorary degree. He was honored more in Europe than he was in the United States, particularly after he sided with the Confederacy. This is the last, the least known part of Maury's life. We're talking about his involvement in Reconstruction. In 1868, the former naval officer turned down the office offer to be the vice chancellor of the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. He'd helped found that institution. In fact, it was founded, actually founded by one of his teachers. James Hervey Odie, who was the first uh, Episcopal Bishop of, uh, excuse me, first Episcopal Bishop of Tennessee. Morey could afford to do that because the Virginia Military Institute looked from a transatlantic distance very appealing. The politically astute Colonel Francis H. Smith wanted VMI to produce a physical survey of the state, similar to Morey's sailing directions. Now this is, General Smith addressing the faculty at VMI. See Maury up there in the front? He's the guy sitting at the table. That's Smith, hand in the air. And he's going to tell him, we're going to do the physical survey of the state. And the rest of you guys over there are going to help Maury, because he's now my number two guy. And if we don't teach any cadets, that's OK, because we're going to go for another prize, too. We're going to be the state land grant institution. Agents were to use it to attract immigrants and capital to build, rebuild twisted rail lines, clear the detritus out of the canals, relight foundries fires, including Tredegar, and plant grain and tobacco to cover scarred battlefields. This was particularly true in the Shenandoah, in the Shenandoah Valley. Smith assured Maury that he had no intention of putting him in the classroom. Maury said, well, this was good. So he came back to Virginia. After, after, after landing in New York and visiting with relatives there, he came to Richmond, where he wanted to meet his cousin, Robert. Robert was a banker and an investor. What struck Maury upon his return was the absence in the street, I'm quoting from his diary, the absence in the streets of well-dressed gentlemen, the multitude of Negroes there, many of them more dandily rigged than the whites. He was stunned. For a few years, now, I should say he had been in exile in Great Britain or in Mexico from 1862 to 1868. So we're talking six crucial years here. He limped around the city and he went back and made old connections with people like Robert Anderson at Tredegar and the sort of other people and outlined for them his and Smith's plans for the rebuilding of the state. From there, Maury traveled to the Cool Mountain Resorts to rub elbows with some of the most powerful men of the old Confederacy. First and foremost, these former Confederates wanted military occupation to end. And Virginia's military occupation was probably the most gentle of all of the Confederate states. A reason being was that for several years, they had a government under Francis Pierpont that had been established back in 1862. The military came in after that. In the summer of 1868, a former Union general, William Rosecrans, was at White Sulphur Springs Resort, long a gathering place for the elite. And he met there with Robert E. Lee, uh, Vice President Alexander Stevens of the Confederacy, former Governor uh, John Letcher, 
Virginia Central P Railroad president, Edward Fontaine, a distant cousin of Maury, Joseph Anderson, as we mentioned, of Tredegar Ironworks, and many other Southern leaders to include PGT Beauregard. This is Lee supposedly meeting Rosecrans, and that's White Sulphur Springs. $320 a night. Right now, you can, get, you can see the ads in the Richmond Times-Dispatch and the travel section of the Washington Post. Rosecrans was then a Democratic Party operative, and the other strain to bring the military, he and Rosecrans and the Democratic Party were straining with the defeated Confederates to end the military occupation of the South and return it to civilian control without radical Republicans and freed slaves dominating the politics. From those discussions came the White Sulphur Springs Manifesto, and its moderately toned opening is what you most often hear. Quote, the important fact that the two races are under existing circumstances necessary to each other is gradually becoming apparent to both. Now that sounds very moderate. When you get into the second part of the manifesto, and the Democratic Party at that time, and probably many Republicans who were not radical Republicans, would accept this as well. I am quoting from the manifesto. The Negroes have neither the intelligence nor the qualifications which are necessary to make the safe disposition of political power. Now, this was not far off from what John Schofield, who was the military commander of the Union forces occupying Virginia, believed. He threw out the Constitution that the radical Republicans and the freed African Americans had written. So this is not way off the political map. This was pretty much mainstream American thinking. To radical Republicans, the manifesto, oh, I should also add, they rejected the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the very price of readmission to the Union. To radical Republicans, the manifesto read, just like the old Southern Democrats had used in Congress prior to the Civil War, do it our way or else, we're out of here. And they did go out of here. While others signed willingly, Maury did not. He said that he did not want his name to appear in northern newspapers and divert attention from the manifesto itself. Maury then, took, then accepted his job at VMI and gave a speech in September of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, September of 1868. And he said, the main object of the physical survey is to make known the natural resources of Virginia to invite enterprise, to stimulate industry, encourage commerce, promote immigration, advance the material prosperity of the people. Nobody could disagree with that. What he wanted was the same kind of data that he'd gathered from the public cruisers and merchantmen. And this time he would pr produce investors' guides for a phoenix rising. In Tidewater, for example, he wanted details about fish and waterfowl, how much land a family could cultivate and gather on a truck farm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, a lot of those instructions you find here in the collection of the Virginia Historical Society, which I thought was very interesting, VMI did not have this. To Maury, speed was of the essence. First, to ward off institutions like Washington College. Hmm, let's see who was running Washington College at that time. Hmm, Robert E. Lee, I think. 
uh, from undertaking such. such and secondly, they wanted to beat out any other southern states getting capital from the north. For the survey, the only thing he had was his $2,000 salary, passes from all the state railroads, and most importantly, the accept the uh, work of one of his most able assistants, John uh, Mercer Brooke. Now, who was Brooke? We're not going to go into long details. He invented the sounding line that you could actually determine how deep an ocean was. That way, you can lay a transatlantic cable. But most importantly to Virginians, he put the armor plating and canted it on CSS Virginia. That's his main claim to fame. Smith and Morey knew that if Washington College proceeded, VMI could lose more than control of its state survey. They could become the land-grant college. It is highly ironic that all of the Southern senators and congressmen voted in lockstep, they could be Democrats, they could be Whigs, voted in lockstep against land-grant colleges and the Homestead Act before the Civil War. Of course, when it passed, when they weren't there, Lincoln signed it, it became law. Then they said, Ooh, well, this federal money's coming in here, and maybe we want to become the state land-grant college. Morey and Smith started lobbying the legislature. They pointed to VMI's history and engineering, and that's what it was originally founded for, and military science. And that was one of the requirements of, of the Morrill Land-Grant College Act, that they teach military science, as reason for the legislature to select it over the other 23 institutions in Virginia to be the land-grant. For now, we're going to leave that question aside. Although it was a key and ingredient in slowing the real construction of the state because it diverted attention in the Richmond, in the Richmond uh, capital as to what needed really to be done and what the priorities were. In November, Maury rallied railroad men and who had rechristened the Virginia Central Railroad as the Chesapeake and Ohio, and businessmen in Norfolk, Petersburg, Richmond, and West Point to complete the fiscal survey. Now, the reason West Point, that was a terminus for one of the Virginia rail lines. Also, it had one of the few other industries. It had a wood pulp industry going very strongly. He demanded that the printers hurry to preempt any rival. He wanted to get this information about what they found across the state. And he said, by hook and by crook, I'm going to gather even more data from my agents. And then I'm going to bring it in, and we're going to have this one document where every investor can come on into Virginia and feel secure that their money will be put to good use. Soon enough, Midwestern and Southern governors all said, oh, this is a great idea. We love your plan, da-da-da-da-da. He's going, current on, why not? But the money didn't come from the North. Maury knew that much of the data that he was gathering was coming from slavery days. So there were, no, there were no labor costs being built into some of these things. Farmers, here's what he wrote, farmers don't respond. I am proposing to try them on another tack and have asked Shields, he's a printer, to print me 500 copies of the new appeal, which I will send with preliminary number one, to pick men in each of the 99 counties. Remember, there used to be more than 120 counties in Virginia, but then there became West Virginia. If anything will bring us immigration, it is our climate and production <coughs> and the noise, noising of them abroad. And for this, 
nibbling won't do. Note, Maury's and Smith's approach to physical reconstruction was agrarian and mercantilistic. The country was moving into the industrial age. The problem was lack of seed money. <coughs> In Norfolk, for example, the city government wrangled over how best to spend its meager resources. Education, <coughs> rebuild the port, expand business. All competed for a very small slice of the pot. <coughs> the reality was that the state's 700,000 whites and a half a million freed blacks were staggering under a half a billion dollars of war debt. Though the survey was supposed to appear every year, they didn't have the underwriting. The state's railroads, which were supposed to be providing the money, were in as much turmoil as the state itself. Robert Morey, Matthew's investment banker cousin, proved that in tightened financial times, you can get money, but it comes at a price. Seeing his chance, Maury approached Collis P. Huntington, one of the big four, the, one of the big four who were building the Central Pacific Railroad. Huntington had a vision of a transcontinental railroad running from, obviously, from the Pacific Coast, meeting somewhere they weren't even sure at that point where they were going to meet in Utah or someplace else, but connected to a continual rail line from the East Coast. <clears throat> and on that East Coast terminus, he wanted a shipyard. Hmm, I think that's Newport New Shipbuilding, if I recall correctly right now. By fall of 1869, Huntington was president of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. And shortly afterwards, he took the railroad and the port of Norfolk out of Virginia and Virginia's hands. This lost control over Virginia affairs troubled many Virginians, including Matthew Fontaine Moore. Yet the economic energy for recovery demanded that they get outside money and capital from persons like Huntington and James B. Fisk. They had the vision, the capital, and the enthusiasm. Unlike the governments of Norfolk, they were not hamstrung over race and control of meager treasure. Our sarcastic Maury wrote, he's writing this to a cousin, Let's make the Pope infallible and then get him to rain the dollars on Virginia for 24 hours. <laughs> the church did its part on infallibility, but the investment drought continued in Richmond. Maury's frustrations were temporarily pushed aside in July, of, uh, July 2nd of 1869 when he delivered the commencement address at VMI. He was a 19th century Nehemiah. I'm quoting this. Are you not the heirs of the lost cause and its noble examples and Christian memories? Its traditions make us very proud. Are you not the sons of the sunny south? Do you not now in the day of your youth tread the soil of Virginia, breathe her atmosphere, and drink at the fountains from which the bravest of men and noblest of women have drawn inspiration? When students begged for copies of the speech, the Institute published it as a pamphlet. He was back in demand. Other institutions came knocking on his door asking him to become president of their colleges. 
Morey had offered many of these same ideas at a speech in Cambridge to a very receptive British audience before he returned to the United States. Particularly in the South, the men who headed institutions of higher education, Smith, Morey, Lee, number of others, thought exactly the same way. As another winter arrived in Lexington, the old leg injuries from that crippling injury, plagued him, and he used crutches to hobble around his quarters on VMI campus. His fingers were swollen and his handwriting too shaky to be legible. Now, I write this knowing that Maury's handwriting in the best of times was absolutely illegible. <laughs> when the state ratified the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in 1870, Virginia's formal military occupation ended. But Maury had little cause for joy. He stood beside Lee's casket in the tiny Washington College Chapel that October. This is a program, uh, this is a program uh, from the funeral. There's actually several pictures that indicate that they were taken on the day of the funeral. You get the chapel, certainly the chapel's there, and you can see part of Washington, what is now Washington Lee College, in the background, but there's hundreds of people, and you can't distinguish any of them. They're sort of going up a hillside. You can't even tell if the women are wearing black, uh, but it says that it was taken that day. In the same month, Maury glumly reported on the survey that I am pained to say that instead of securing reports from each of the 99 counties, I have returns from only 30. The He's about ready to leave. University of Alabama comes with a new offer. They said, well, we're not only getting $5,000 to be president, they offered him the power of choosing faculty, established a curriculum, provided him with a home, and did not require him to teach. This time he accepted. Lou Saban and Bear Bryant were not there at the time. <laughs> he believed he could control the Alabama legislature in the same way that he had controlled Congress in winning appropriations for the observatory and voyages of exploration. Hadn't he done the same thing with Virginia's secession convention and the Confederate Congress? He ignored his most recent experience with the Virginia uh, legislature over VMI's land-grant status, and he accepted the job as being president of the University of Alabama. And then he gave this little speech. The aim is to build up and improve the institution until it attains the proportions of a real university, complete in all of its uh, uh, appointments and to crown it with a polytechnic school of a high order in the halls, galleries, museums, laboratories, and workshops to which southern youth of whatever state may come and without fail qualify themselves for any one of the mechanical arts or industrial uh, callings. What difference here is he's sort of saying we maybe we ought to pay attention to, industri uh, to industry as well. He wanted an endowment of at least $10,000 to open the school, and he wanted about 1,000 students. With each exchange of letters, the Board of Trustees said, well, we can't deliver this, we can't deliver that. By September, Maury, who had only accepted this in May, remember, has resigned. He had little choice but to return to VMI. What did he do immediately when he came back to VMI? He and Smith then got back on the land-grant institution. However, the state legislature said, we're done with this. 
It isn't going to be Mr. Jefferson's University. It's not going to be the College in Williamsburg. It's not going to be VMI. It's not going to be uh, any of the other 20-plus colleges. It's going to be this tiny little place out in Blacksburg. And this is supposedly the original building of Virginia Tech. Uh, Maury, of course, was crushed by this. Smith was furious. Maury then returned in, that, in 1871 to his last unfulfilled scientific project, and that was the National Weather Service. What he wanted to do was to best, this is Joseph Henry, best Joseph Henry in controlling the weather data. During the war, the telegraphic communications to the Smithsonian had stopped. They had resumed. They were still publishing them only annually. As infirm as he was, Maury took to the road in late spring 1871. And in a familiar way, it was like many of the crusades that he had launched before the war. He had done it for southern business. He had done it to find the Northwest Passage. He'd done it to explore the Amazon. Support was guaranteed in the South and was drawing approval from the North as well. The influential Prairie Farmer, editorialized in Prairie Farmer, was published in my home state of Illinois, Commodore Morey, we'll go back to that, proposes to make himself much more useful to the world, parentheses, if the world will let him, close parentheses, than he has been during the past 10 years. Well, what he'd been doing during the past 10 years, he'd been fighting the Union, among other things. He proposes to wit to organize an international system of crop reporting in connection with the Weather Signal Service already in operation in this country. The Weather Signal Service was under the Surgeon General of the Army. It was an Army position. At that point, there was exactly one weather station in the eastern, east of the Mississippi, and that was right now at where is Fort Gordon, uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. There were weather stations in each of the forts west of the Mississippi. If Maury believed domestic and international support would be enough to carry the day in Washington, he was wrong. Not even the Commissioner of Agriculture supported him. A frustrated Maury lashed out, and he denounced the scientifics, that would be the term that they used for persons like Henry, as servants of the greedy. This is a quote. To lift you up from under the heels of the speculator and to place merchants, producers, and consumers side by side, all upon the same level and on the same platform in this knowledge as to supply and demand is surely a noble aim and a consummation devoutly to be wished. After that speech, Maury was so debilitated that he had to break off the tour and he went home. As he went back to Lexington and tried to recoup his vigor, he received a very interesting letter from a newspaper editor in Massachusetts. Now, the editor happened to be a distant relative of John Adams. Uh, Maury took an interest in this. It was from Norfolk County. Well, they probably wouldn't pronounce it Norfolk, but Norfolk County, Massachusetts. And what he was proposing was that Maury come up there and explain what a National Weather Service would do for farmers in Massachusetts. Maury was very intrigued, and he wrote on the bottom of a note that was going to be transcribed into a letter to respond to the request, cui bono, 
to who's good, Kern on, why not? Speaking to Massachusetts, he praised John Quincy Adams for elevating American science. Adams was a real pusher for a national observatory, though he didn't want the Navy to run it. While omitting how for three years as a member of the Confederate Secret Service, he had bedeviled Adams' son and managed to get two Confederate commerce raiders to sea. The journey by train to St. Louis that year became the first tolling of the death knell. He was barely able to make himself heard when he spoke in St. Louis at an agricultural fair. He thought, if only I can get back to Norfolk, I will be able to complete the loop. I might be able to pull this National Weather Service off. But he could get no farther than Fredericksburg, where the family had its deepest roots. He knew that he had to get back to VMI. As winter crept over the Blue Ridge Mountains, Matthew Fontaine Morey told his beloved wife, Anne Herndon Morey, my dear, I am come home to die. This is a picture of her supposedly taken in 1875 by a cousin who was named Matthew Fontaine Morey. Yes, he had come home to die. Now bedridden in his house on VMI's parade grounds, the dying man gave his family one last command. Before his burial in Richmond, he wanted his body carried through lovely Goshen Pass near Lexington. And quote, you must pluck the rhododendrons and the mountain ivy and lay them upon me. Now, if you've ever been through Goshen Pass, there's a lot of rhododendrons in there, so you've got plenty to choose from. Now, the slide says that this is Maury's, when I pulled it, it says that this is Maury's house uh, on the VMI campus. Uh, having been to VMI quite a few times, actually, uh, this is not the house where the plaque says that it's Maury's house, but all of these faculty homes look basically the same, so that was pretty much, pretty much what it looked like. <laughs> Near the end of his life, Maury turned on his deathbed to a picture of his son, John. John was forever missing at the Battle of Vicksburg. He also had another son, Richard, who was so severely wounded that he could he was even more of a crippled man than his father and nodded to it. And to him and to John is what he said to the pictures, his brother who had died at sea. February 1, 1873 was a Saturday. He turned to Dick, his oldest son. He said, are my feet growing cold? Do I drag my anchors? The 34-year-old Confederate veteran and lawyer answered, they are firm and secure. As if from the death of, deck of a warship, the commander said, all's well. He asked his wife and daughters to leave. And he was going to be there with his son-in-law and sons. Only young Diana disobeyed. She stayed out of sight. She saw her father lift his hands toward heaven, this is quoting her, like a little child who wants to be taken up. He died at 12.40 p.m. that day, February 1st. On learning of the death, Henry wrote, Maury, a man of talent, but vain, boastful, vindictive, with, but with, little scientific, with but little scientific capacity, and still suggested, 
and capable of doing work of value as the basis of other men's investigations, the knife was still twisting. The New York Herald, a Democratic newspaper, wrote, as the founder and most successful prosecutor of the benign system of oceanic researches, which has illuminated this perilous path, the perilous paths of the mariner and taught commerce how to make the winds and currents of the sea do its bidding, would that it hold off the storm, his labors will long be, will long, <coughs> will long be gratefully remembered as a marked type of an American scientist. His career deserves careful study, and it certainly does. In the spring, his body was removed from its temp temporary burial, ground site, burial site in Lexington. And as he requested, it was taken through Goshen Pass and on to Richmond. The surge of the James over its falls resonates through the capitals, Hollywood Cemetery. There, the scientist warrior is at rest in the immediate company of two Virginia presidents, John Tyler, who did so much for Maury's career in and out of the service and in two navies, and James Monroe, who was in office when Maury received his midshipman's warrant. phrase was going to be thank you, but you, you beat me to it. So I'm taking off the reading glasses so I can see anybody if you have any questions. Way in the back. Mari was clearly a remarkable uh, man, probably more far-reaching than anybody else on Monument Avenue. <laughs> well, he's the only guy not on a horse. <laughs> uh, at one time, he reportedly supported a proposal. You mentioned the Amazon earlier. Uh, supported a proposal for slave owners and their slaves to move to Brazil. Can you yeah. tell us anything about that proposal? Well, the propo actually, he didn't go to Brazil. He went to Mexico, but that was because he was on his way to Texas to continue the fight when Lee uh, surrendered. He was coming from uh, Great Britain to, uh, he was in Havana at the time. Uh, yeah, there were a number of Confederates, called Confederados now, who did immigrate to the Amazon, and they did take uh, probably their slaves with them. And Brazil still had slavery as part of its code in uh, after the American Civil War. I think they abolished, meaning the Brazilians abolished slavery in the 1870s. Uh, there were probably about 300 or so that went down there and stayed. Very few of the Americans who went down to Mexico stayed because Juarez, who had been the legitimate ruler of uh, Mexico before he was overthrown and the French installed Maximilian, uh, he was the, the Americans were no longer wanted down there and they returned back. Primarily, if they didn't return back to the United States, they went to Canada or to uh, Great Britain. Oh, yeah, okay. could you expand more on the, you said they closed the loop when the editorial of the Norfolk, uh, the Massachusetts newspaper, uh, inquired about the uh, data. Do, could you expand on that uh, yeah, part what, of it? What, what, the, uh, what they were looking for there was not only the weather data that he was requesting, and he wanted people in all of the towns you know, you, you designate Joe Smith. Joe Smith doesn't have to be a meteorologist. We want Joe Smith 
to record the temperature. We want Joe Smith to record uh, the winds. You know, we'll give him devices to record the winds. And identify sort of what the clouds look like. Now, terms like cumulus and cirrus and those, they, they come into use later. But if you say big puffy clouds, you know, they, they would understand that. The other thing was what crops were being produced there and how productive was that land. And then if you're doing it longitudinally, which is what they wanted to do, was over time, had you played out the land, and what did you do not to play out the land, like Virginia and Maryland played out those tobacco fields, like it was, you know, we'll just move and, you know, we'll go up to, we'll go up to Albemarle County and plant, plant more tobacco. And, uh, well, eventually you run out of land, you know, if you keep doing it that way. But that was what they were trying to do in closing the loop of all of that data. He had gotten some of that kind of information, particularly from the truck farms in Tidewater, uh, Isla White County, Princess Anne County. I'm trying to think what other ones I read. I know I read Isla White because I lived across the river from Isla White, so I figured I'd know what that was. Uh, and Princess Anne because I knew that they shifted from, um, they produced uh, tobacco, and then they shifted into cotton, and then they shifted into peanuts. Uh, and I was in Nansenman County, but that was the other one that they wish is now totally subsumed into Suffolk, the city of Suffolk, but that was what he was looking for. And what did they do to change that, you know, make the land more productive? Yes, uh, Mallory was such a naval visionary. Um, I can never understand why he was moved to London in 1862, number one. And number <laughs> two is... They, all, you, all you have to do is just realize who were his two biggest enemies. The yeah. president of the Confederacy, mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis, and uh, Stephen Mallory. And uh, what did Maury do? He sniped at him in the newspapers. And uh, he had a project to build... A, they supported, Mallory supported him on mining the rivers. Mallory wanted to build what they call batteries. CSS Virginia was a battery. It was not really designed to be an ocean-going commerce raider, nor was it really designed to go terrorize northern cities. It was to protect ports like Norfolk. It cost a lot of money, $150,000 of gold. Maury had a plan to build small little gunboats. And you would put those little gunboats with the mines, and nobody could land an invading force. All you had to do to see the value of gunboats was who stopped Samuel F. DuPont and Benjamin Butler at Port Royal, South Carolina. They didn't have anything down there that could stop them. So these transport, these lumbering transports, caught in the tide. Now we're talking boats trying to land troops. Caught in the tide, nobody's firing at them. So the troops made it ashore, essentially an unopposed landing. Well, Maury said, eh. my good friend William Lynch converted fishing boats down in... Uh, North Carolina, in the sounds of North Carolina, and we certainly slowed them down at Cape Hatteras. Imagine if we built hundreds of those. His, his program would have cost a million dollars. To build the Commerce Raider ironclads, that would have cost another four million dollars. And we're not talking in Confederate currency, we're talking in specie, gold and silver. 
and uh, eventually there was no money. And uh, the continuing antagonism between Davis, Mallory, and Maury uh, played out, and he was, as he said, exiled. That was the word he always used. I've, I've been exiled. Another question over there. Two, okay. two questions, actually. Uh -oh, one, we can only answer one. No, go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't uh, aware of, of Maury's role in the Transcontinental Railroad. Would he have come out one way or the other in the... <laughs> Gauge of that railroad? No, not on the gauge. I just I have to I have to go back. His father, not his father. His grandfather was a member of the Loyal Land Company, and the Loyal Land Company uh, bought this huge tracts of land, which is now basically Kentucky, Tennessee, and I think Arkansas, but I'm not sure. Anyway, definitely Kentucky and Tennessee. And uh, <laughs> he said he, he John C. Calhoun asked him the question. And ask him in, on the Senate, ask him in the Senate committee hearing, then put it in writing. Said, "Do we need another survey to determine the route of the Transcontinental Railroad?" Now, Maury, Maury wrote back, "My grandfather's generation surveyed the routes. We all know which way to go. So you know, it, you basically run it either. You go from a southern." perspective, meaning from Charleston to Memphis, Calhoun like that part, the Charleston to Memphis part, and then you streak it across what is now the, what would have been the old Southern Pacific lines getting near New Orleans, El Paso, et cetera, and then sort of curving back up. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have curved it to LA, they would have curved it to San Diego because that was where the port was. Or you can go straight across the country, central, which Stephen A. Douglas liked, but you didn't have any bridges across the Mississippi. You had no railroad bridges across the Mississippi. So you sort of run it from about Davenport, Iowa, just made that, or Cedar Rapids, take your choice, separated by about, I think, 50 miles of river. And then just sort of go straight across the plains and hope that somebody over there in California can figure out how to get through the Sierra Nevada. <laughs> and eventually they did. They built the sheds. That's how they did it. You know, otherwise you got this snow falling down on you. Okay, and your second question? And the second question was, when was the Maury River named after? Uh, when was it named? I don't know, but everything that I, I it has to have been much later, but I have to say that most of the stuff I see from uh, even into the early 20th century, they refer to it as, as either the north or south fork of the Shenandoah River. I can't remember which fork it is. I think it's the north fork, but maybe wrong. Um, yes, ma'am. This is a total side note. You've mentioned Maury's um, Huguenot roots. Yes. But his paternal grandmother is descended from Raleigh Croshaw, who came to Virginia on the second supply ship in 1608 and survived the starving time. So that's Virginia about as far back as you can go. So he can really be an FFV, huh? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> he, he can, and... Both sides of his family were adventurers. Well, I, I have to say that, you know, uh, if you've ever been down to Williamsburg and played the Golden Horseshoe uh, golf course, always remember that one of the guys who got the Golden Horseshoe was Matthew Fontaine Maury's uh, great uncle who went with Spotswood to go find out what the rest of the state looked like or what the rest of the colony looked like. And then if, if they're quick, we can do one, two more questions. Yeah. Really okay. Back there? Yes. Yeah. Um, when I was at MCV, 
they had a building on sort of the No, that is there. not where he did all the testing. Your <laughs> Alumni Association building is where they tested the mines. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, he said he tested but however, MCV conveniently up. picked that plaque up. They found another row house across the street and slapped it on and said, "Take a look at that thing. That's where it is." But no, it's not. It's actually across the street. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> that was a quick answer to that one. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your book. And I under you mentioned his leg injury. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I understand it was at that time that while someone read the Bible to him. Uh, Psalm 8, verse 8, he said, if there are paths in the sea, I'm going to find them, and he did. Well, how do, the answer is yes, the, the prayers were there. In fact, he wrote a beautiful prayer that he uh, taught all his children as he was dying. Uh, about it's, Essentially, it's Job-like, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic by baptism, so when I say Job-like, you have to realize I'm not really sure what I'm saying, but... <laughs> Uh, but it really is very moving. But when his younger, his wife's youngest cousin, who then became a law professor at UVA, we won't hold it against him, I had two years of law training myself, uh, he stayed with Maury in that crummy hotel in Ohio. And yes, he read to him a lot. Uh, they talked a lot. And I wouldn't doubt it because what he, the, thing that he was supposed to be going back to was a survey of the coast, uh, southern coast, to build a navy yard. Actually, they'd done the work. If you've ever been to Kings Bay, Georgia, which is where the largest ballistic missile submarine base is for the United States Navy, they surveyed that. Navy didn't take anything up on it, you know, until 1980, but, you know, the work was done in the 1830s. And, but then they were going to go back around to Texas, and what they were looking at was something besides Galveston to be a port of importance in Texas, which had, Tyler had, was about to drag into the Union. Um, and the ports that they were looking at were not Houston, but uh, Brownsville, Matamoros, Matamoros being on the Mexican side. And um, whatever Corpus Christi was called at that time, it wasn't called Corpus Christi, but they were looking at uh, Corpus Christi. And they were going to survey those ports. There was a gentleman who's been waiting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. One final question. Okay. Uh, having been at the Naval Observatory for more than 40 years, the uh, history. The current one or the uh, the old one? Uh, the the current one. Okay. I'm not that old. But the. Uh, <laughs> hey, the Naval Medical Command's still there, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Oh the, yeah, they're still there. The. Um, the historians at the Naval Observatory sort of belittle the, uh, the uh, time that Maury spent at the Naval Observatory because from an astronomical point of view, he didn't do much for the astronomers. However, he was very busy with his oceanographic charts. That's and, that, yeah. And, and um, so as a consequence, they, uh, there seems to be this period of time in the history of the Naval Observatory where they sort of don't pay too much attention to Mari. And I was wondering if you had any comments on Mari's um, astronomical interest or something at the, at the observatory. Yeah, I'll, I'll just very briefly go into that. Uh, frankly, the money was not coming in to naval science. And now when I'm saying naval science, I'm talking exploration, I'm talking, you know, oceanic, oceanic, oceanic work. 
in the atmosphere. He was rounding up money privately. And they would pay to, um, they would pay for exploration, meaning private businessmen, primarily out of New York. They would pay for exploration. Oh, quote, we're going to find Sir John Franklin. Hey, more, more importantly, can you find that Northwest Passage up there? Show me how to get there. You know, and uh, can we you know, find a way to get across uh, the Isthmus of Panama? We're interested in that. Um, astronomically, they fell so far behind. Uh, if, I, if you can go back to an astronomer named Simon Newcomb, whom you should know, uh, and in his reminiscences, and I think that's what the book is called, you can go back in there and find out. He, he doesn't beat Maury over the head about it. He says that there was no money and that they had fallen two to three years behind in taking the data that they collected and producing the books that were supposed to be there. Now, of course, when Gillis, who was Maury's great rival in the Navy to run the observatory, gets in there, he starts patting Bache on the back and saying, oh boy, look at how Professor Bache helped me get all this astronomical work done. Well, yeah, you send all these engineers and you know, mathematicians over from the Coast Survey to get it, you know, the backlog done. It's going to get done. So, uh, yeah, the, the astronomical work was anywhere from two to four years behind time. He's exactly correct. There was no money. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you. Thank you.